Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's March 2nd, 1896. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. The so-called scramble for Africa, that period of colonization of most of Africa by seven European powers at the turn of the 20th century, is generally thought to have been a fairly one-way affair with Europeans, you know, just dominating the locals. But on this day in 1896, that script was flipped when the Ethiopian Emperor Menelik II soundly defeated the invading Italians in battle and then sent them packing. So it was a two-day engagement, but it ended on this day, and it's still celebrated in Ethiopia as the victory of Adwa Day. And it's marked by wearing traditional clothing and singing patriotic songs. And it's really looked to across Africa as an example of, you know, pan-African success in the face of European colonisation. Even though it sort of doesn't tell you that much about Ethiopia as a country now, does it? Because Ethiopia then was Abyssinia, and they were then invaded again by the Italians, you know, decades later. But it's just that, as Arian was saying, the scramble for Africa, so-called, was so depressing from an African standpoint. Every nation had been invaded by European powers. Only what we now know as Ethiopia and Liberia had maintained their independence. And this was the moment that actually even probably the Ethiopians, if they'd been thinking, are we going to make it through an Italian invasion, might have suspected that they wouldn't. But they did. Yeah, so Ethiopia in the mid-19th century was a conglomerate of these semi-independent kingdoms presided over by the Ethiopian emperor Johannes IV. But when he died, there was this period of disorder that saw the rise of Salem Miriam of Shehwa, who came to be supported financially and militarily by the Italians. And he then united the kingdom and claimed the title of emperor, taking on the name Menelik II. So that was him. He actually came to power with Italian support. And also supporting the Italian claim to Ethiopia, surprisingly, considering that they were getting their hands on everything else at the time, was Great Britain. And they did that because they specifically did not want the French to step in, because Ethiopia has some coastline on the Red Sea, and they didn't want the French to be setting up shop on the Red Sea in a place where they could interfere with British shipping in the Suez Canal. So they basically invited the Italians to step in, which they did initially in Eritrea, which now obviously is an independent country, but then was sort of one of these constituent parts of the Ethiopian Empire. And they kind of sat there for a while and there were a couple of border incursions, but mostly they kept their hands to themselves until this Italo-Ethiopian war. Well, just before the war, there was a treaty, right? So there was a document that Italy signed and Ethiopia signed. Essentially, I guess, with the stated aim of... Let's be clear what our intentions are here, everybody. We're in Eritrea, but you've got nothing to worry about. That was the point of the document, except, and I can't work out whether this was done deliberately, but I can only imagine it was, (laughs) the version that Menelik II saw and signed didn't have a clause in it that said that Ethiopia had, by signing the treaty, effectively become a protectorate of the Kingdom of Italy. The... uh, (laughs) Amharic draft of the treaty, the the language of Ethiopia, did not say that, but the Italian version of supposedly the same document did. 
Yeah, and Italian diplomats later were like, wait, 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 wait. This Amharic version was definitely the way that we intended before you got to it and have somehow slipped out that clause or whatever you did. Yeah, and I think on the balance of probabilities, it was probably a deliberate attempt by Italy to deceive what they saw as an inferior country and to sort of trick their way into power. And I think you can see that. And there was a comment from the time from Gerald Portal. He was the British consul of Zanzibar, and he had been brought in to oversee these peace negotiations. He was a man of his time. He called the Ethiopian savage. But then he also cautioned against contempt of a gallant enemy because his skin happens to be chocolate or brown or black and because his men have not gone through orthodox courses of field firing, battalion drill or autumn manoeuvres. So I think there was an awareness that Italy were possibly underestimating their opponents. And that underestimation was a thing that Menelik actively preyed upon. It sort of made me think he must have been at least vaguely cognizant of Sun Tzu's The Art of War because he had this force at his disposal of 100,000 troops and all of this modern weaponry much of which had come to him via Italy. But he actively downplayed his military strength by leaking false reports that suggested that he had many fewer troops under his command and by spreading rumours that basically there was widespread discord among his soldiers. And Menelik's army were able to use colonial tropes against their opponents in a way that was really brilliant. One thing is that Ethiopia had been leaned on so many times to act as a pawn for various colonial powers that they actually had a lot more weaponry than the Italians imagined. The majority of their 100,000 troops were armed with rifles, not necessarily the most modern rifles, but rifles all the same. They weren't standing there, you know, with spears as their opponents might have imagined. They also had 50 artillery pieces. And another thing as well is that the Italians were really leaning into the colonial playbook. Their tactic was to exploit what they imagined to be these regional and ethnic rivalries between the various kingdoms of Ethiopia. But Menelik was actually successful successful in uniting them and building this massive army. That force of 100,000 completely dwarfed the Italian force of 17,000. Mm. But their commander, Oreste Barattieri, was actually aware of this and he didn't want to provoke mm. a major battle. It wasn't until the authorities in Rome, they were pretty itchy to build up Italy's colonial status, they basically ordered him to go into this engagement, which would have catastrophic consequences. Well, from that point of view, I think you can look at motivation as a factor here as well, You know, which brings us back to our episode from last week, How Not to Invade Britain. You look at the the reasons that the sides were involved and the Ethiopians prayed for divine guidance. You know, the emperor believed God was on his side when he was about to be invaded. Baratieri wanted to retreat and was really just being told to invade Ethiopia by Rome, who insisted that the attack happen now, despite the fact the general didn't want to do it at this point. They had old maps. You know, they had an army that was made up largely of Eritrean soldiers, Ascari they were called, whose heart wouldn't have been in this. So, I mean, immediately you've got two very different armies there. The Italians had actually marched quite deeply into Ethiopian territory and had a few mini victories along the way, but then they rapidly started to run out of water and of food and clothing and Baratieri's generals talked him out of a tactical retreat. And one of them, Vittorio Dabamida, said Italy would prefer the loss of two or three thousand men to a dishonourable retreat. And so really he was goaded into it from all angles. And so he sounded the drums of war and set off for battle that was meant to commence at 9am. But they actually started their march at midnight. I was thinking nine hours of marching. There's a whole lot of marching before you then start to try to shoot people dead and stop yourself being shot dead. The Ethiopians were saving up their energy and not doing the marching. Right. Apparently the Italians assumed the Ethiopians would be asleep. But I'm like, they got there at 9am. Why on earth would you be having a lie? until 9am. 
a.m. when you're expecting an invasion at any point. <laughs> they were ready and waiting for the Italians and they swept down on them. I mean, the Italians lost nearly 60% of their men. Miraculously, mm-hmm. the Ethiopians just 10%. One of the columns of Italian soldiers actually marched to the top of the wrong mountain, very sort of grand old Duke of York, um, and then had to locate the correct mountain but strayed into the path of uh, an oncoming column of Ethiopian soldiers and they themselves were then mowed down and the Italians turned tail and began running. And the reason for those terrible losses was because the Ethiopians then pursued them for nine miles until the late afternoon, just picking people off as they went. And even after the sun went down, local peasants were alerted to what was going on by signal fires, and they continued to kill both the Italians and also the Ascari, whom they were particularly angered by, because these were kind of local people who you know, could have been from groups that they were familiar with anyway, and they showed them a particular lack of mercy. Yeah, specifically by cutting off their hands and feet. Um, Whereas the Italian prisoners were treated relatively well, considering that there weren't huge amounts of supplies of food and and so forth. So it wasn't a comfortable imprisonment, but they were treated humanely. But nonetheless, the huge losses sparked outrage in Italy, especially, of course, because, you know, the Italian commanders didn't really want to attack. They were being pressured from Rome. And so there were protests outside Parliament. They had to close universities and theatres because of the mass outrage. And the whole massacre really stuck in the craw of Italy. It was a real wound to their national ego to the point where when Italian troops occupied Ethiopia again in 1936, Mussolini said, Adua e vendicata, meaning Adua has been avenged, which just shows the place that he'd been occupying for all those decades Mm. in the Italian psyche. Menelik was criticised in the aftermath for not having followed up on his victory by attempting to drive the routed Italians completely out of their colony in Eritrea. But historians looked back on it and thought, actually, this was probably a quite calculated move, because had he done something like that, it would have forced the Italian people to turn what was pretty much just a bungled colonial war into something of a national crusade. And he had this period of, you know, 40 years of comparative peace before then, yeah, Mussolini came and had the return of Adwa, which was a new war that this time the Ethiopians lost. And it was as a direct result of this battle that Italy signed the Treaty of Addis Ababa, which recognised Ethiopia as an independent state. Mm. And presumably there was no switcheroos on the contract that time. Right. No games then. (laughs) Yeah. This one they had the same version of. (laughs) Tomorrow. The fear of unwanted pregnancy was a positive. It was a natural inducement for young women to retain their virtue. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.